0: This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast National Candidate Series, highlighting some of the crucial races around the country in 2018. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk with Dana Balter. Dana is running for Congress in New York's 24th Congressional District, which includes Syracuse, Auburn, and Oswego. She is a visiting professor at the Maxwell School of Public Affairs at Syracuse University, and she recently received a national endorsement from Indivisible. Dana Balter, Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you.
0: But well, first and foremost, I want to say congratulations on the endorsement. You are part of a cohort of candidates that are the first to receive Indivisible's national endorsement. So congratulations on that.
1: Yes, I was one of the first five. And I am very honored by that and very proud of that because Indivisible, for me, is really what it's all about. It is uh, my whole intention with this campaign The way that I view public service and government, it's about bringing politics and government back to the hands of the people where it belongs. And that's what the entire Indivisible movement is about. So um, I think it's not only fitting, but it's extra special to me to have that endorsement.
0: Well, you've been involved as a leader um, in it's an Indivisible affiliated group, Central New York Solidarity Coalition. Uh, That's a coalition that includes Indivisible NY24. Talk a little bit about your group and how you came to be involved.
1: Yeah, so it came about right after the 2016 presidential election. Um, I had an experience that I think I probably shared with millions of people across the country, although while I was having this experience, I felt very alone. Mm -hmm. And that was waking up the morning after the election and trying to come to terms with what had happened. I was furious and I was terrified about what it meant for the future of our country. And particularly for the people that I love and that I had tried to work to support and protect my entire life. I knew that I had to do something about what was happening, but I didn't know what it was that I could do as one person. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking around for some outlet, some place to channel all of those feelings into something productive so that instead of just being angry and scared, I could be active. And I found this group that formed right in the immediate aftermath of the election. It was a small group of people who lived in the same community who were feeling much the same way that I was and bumped into to each other and said, let's, let's meet, let's talk about what we can do. And they ended up forming this group called CNY Solidarity Coalition. And so I did what I usually do when I get excited about something. I jumped in with both feet I became a core organizer of this group. And, you know, it really took off. The membership grew. There are about 2,000 members now all across our district. Um, The organization's intent was to fight back against the Trump-Pence-Ryan agenda with a particular eye to supporting and protecting the most marginalized in our communities who are at the greatest risk from that agenda. And one of the things that... I worked really hard on as part of that organization was trying to move our congressman, John Katko.
0: And he's the Republican who currently holds the seat in the 24th.
1: Yes, he is an incumbent. He's in his second term. And he, for some reason, refuses to stand up to Donald Trump. He will not acknowledge when Donald Trump does something that is just fundamentally wrong or undemocratic or mean-spirited, or anything, right? He won't call that behavior out. And he doesn't fight for the things that the people in his district are asking him for. He's on the wrong side of issues like healthcare and environmental, environmental policy and gun policy. And he won't meet with his constituents. He's one of these congressmen who will not hold a public meeting that anybody can come to and ask questions and hear what he has to say. And on top of that, when you call his office, you don't get any answers. His staff will not tell you where he stands on an issue, how he's planning to vote or what he thinks about. The only answer you ever get is we'll pass your concern along to the congressman. Right. And to my way of thinking, that's a, a violation of the most fundamental responsibility of your job as a representative. Well, he's which supposed is to be the-
0: a representative, right?
1: That's right. You have to engage with your constituents. You have to listen to what they have to say. And so one of the things that I worked very hard on was a campaign to get him to hold town hall meetings. And um, I spent many months of all my time and energy trying to influence this man to do the right thing in any one of these areas. (laughs) And when it became completely clear to me that he would not, that he would never budge on any of these things. I decided that was no longer a good use of my energy and that my energy and my skill would be better used to run against him. And that's why I got in the race. I wanted to meet with my congressman about health (laughs) care.
0: Well, it's an extraordinary story. And, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to the first part of your story, but you have actually taken the step to run for office. Uh, You know, I can also add that a number of people listening who live in my district, Washington's 8th, uh, can relate to what you've been through with an unresponsive congressman. Um, So you speak about wanting to protect the most vulnerable people. And you have said in other interviews that a lot of your values and even some of your motivation for running for Congress go back to your experience growing up with a brother who had cognitive disabilities. Can you talk about that?
1: absolutely. Um, I, I am one of four kids in my family. I'm third in line. And my younger brother, who is less than two years younger than I am, has cognitive disabilities. We're so close in age. We really grew up together. I don't, I don't have any memories of my life before he came along, right? He's always been there. And I learned a lot from him. Um, I think the overarching lessons that I learned from him are how important it is to stand up for the underdog and that we have to make sure that every single person in our society has dignity and access. And those fundamental ideas, I think, are what shaped the person that I became. They are what shape the way I see the world, the way I see our communities, and especially the way I see the role of government in our society. I think that The job of government is to guarantee dignity and access, to do the most good for the most people, but especially to make sure that nobody is left behind. And I think that there are a lot of people in our country for whom government has not fulfilled that promise. I think in many ways, the majority of us have been blind to how much people have been left behind and are left behind and left out and denied access i think those feelings are part of what led to the outcome of the election that we saw
0: yeah i mean that was certainly part of trump's appeal right was was reaching out to people who felt like they had been excluded from the conversation in government for any number of reasons. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, in your district, which does have a large number of people who voted for Trump, uh, now that it has been uh, a year and a half of the Trump GOP agenda, and Trump promised these people a lot and hasn't really delivered, um, are you hearing people in your district talk about that, maybe express disappointment?
1: Yeah, I certainly hear that from people. Um, One of the things that's happened recently that I think has really sort of been the limit for a lot of people who were hopeful that having Donald Trump in office and the GOP in charge in Congress was going to bring them benefit um, is the tax bill. And our congressman, John Katko, voted for that tax bill. And it is very hard for me to understand how, as a representative from the state of New York, he could support this bill because we all know that this bill takes particular aim at states like New York and California that are high tax states. And the reason that we are a high tax state is because we as New Yorkers have come together and decided collectively that we want to invest in things like public education and roads and bridges and health care. And protections and supports for the most marginalized in our communities, and this tax bill punishes us for making that decision by taking away the tax deductibility of ten thousand dollars of our property and sales te- or property and income tax here in the state. Um, so we end up getting double taxed on a lot of our money, and. Um, for a a New York representative to vote for that bill when he lives in a district that is not a wealthy district, right, where people are really struggling, um, is, it, it was really astonishing to me. And I've heard from a lot of people who were supporters of John Katkos, who had voted for him, not once, but twice, who said, this is it. I was angry with him before because he's inaccessible. He won't meet with us. I didn't like his vote on this, but I thought he was a decent guy. But now with this tax vote, I'm done because this shows that he really doesn't care about us. What he put first was his party leadership's needs and the needs of his wealthy corporate donors.
0: Well, so that erosion of support there gets into some kind of interesting questions about your district generally. It is a classic purple district. You yourself use the color purple prominently on your page and in your campaign material. I'm I'm sure that's not an accident. But uh, so a majority of people in New York's 24th district voted for Democrats for president since 2008, including in 2016. But in the race for Congress in 2014 and 2016, voters went for Republican John Katko by almost 20 points. So how do you square that away? What does that say about your district?
1: Yeah, so uh, we have, you know, it's a very interesting district. And I think that that circumstance is reflective of something that we need to be really aware of in our political conversations. I think we try to oversimplify things. We try to have everything in a nice, tidy picture that we can put in a chart and we can explain really easily why people do what they do. And I think, um, first of all, life is not that simple. And people are not that simple. Well, you teach public
0: policy, so uh, you you kind of understand it on an academic level, right?
1: Right. Um, But I feel it in the district on a really personal level, Hmm. right? It is present in every conversation that you have with somebody because the issues that are driving people to vote are the things that shape their everyday lives, right? These are deeply personal things. We're talking about whether or not somebody can support their family and whether or not somebody can get... Uh, to see a doctor when they're sick, right? I mean, the most fundamental things. And I think that um, what people are really looking for is representation. They want their elected officials to be open and honest with them. They want them to demonstrate integrity in their work, to connect with them on a personal level, and to stand up for their interests, right? Fundamentally, that's what we're looking for our representatives to do. And I think if you talk to most people, they don't care if their representative agrees with them on everything. That's not the point. Because, first of all, that's not possible, right? I mean, we don't even agree with ourselves 100% <laughs> of the time, right, never mind somebody else. Right. But that's really not what people are asking for. What I find is if I have a conversation with somebody who lives in this district, whether they're a voter or not, what they are looking for, first and foremost, is to be heard, right, which is a basic human need, we want to be heard. And on top of that, respected. And so if we have a difference of opinion, that's okay. As long as we respect each other, we can recognize that we are both good people, that we are working towards the same ultimate goals, which is to make sure that our families and our communities are happy, healthy, and prosperous. That's what we all want. We might have different ideas about how to get there, but if we can focus on those things that we agree on and recognize that in each other, that means that we're all on the same team. And then we can have conversations about what's the best approach to make that happen. And if we disagree, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. The conversation doesn't have to fall apart and we don't have to walk away angry and hating each other. Instead, we walk away respecting each other, recognizing that there's a difference of opinion, but thinking, you know what, that person's pretty cool. I think we can have a conversation again.
0: So, so then you're, you're focusing on commonalities, what we have in common as opposed to what divides us.
1: Yes. And, and I think that's so important. We Our politics in general has moved so far away from recognizing that, never mind focusing on it. We don't even acknowledge it any. We have such a hyper partisan, such a bitterly divided public dialogue. It is downright toxic. There is no way to make progress if that's how every conversation goes. And we need to get back to real civil discourse.
0: Okay. So then I see the philosophy that is informing you as a candidate. I'm wondering how that would translate to you as a congressperson. How would you put those values to work uh, in Congress?
1: Yeah. So I think there's there's two main ways, right? One, that shapes um, the way I see the job in Congress because I recognize that if I'm lucky enough to be elected to represent my district, I will be walking into a hyper-partisan atmosphere, right? We know that Congress is pretty dysfunctional. And as one of 435 people, no individual gets to um, make on their own a huge difference, right? But I think that's exactly why this approach is so valuable because We have to start focusing on what we have in common, and I believe that takes us down to the level of values, what the basic values that we hold are. And if we start from a point of agreement, we can agree to work together towards that goal and disagree respectfully and recognize that um, the only way forward, because of the way our government is structured, is through compromise, Right. So it's not about sitting down to the table and getting what you want. It's about sitting down to the table and making sure that everybody who walks away from that table has a win. Everybody who walks away from that table has something that they take away that um, fulfills a need that they came To address.
0: Well, I think a good area to discuss then would be healthcare, right? Because I think most people believe that it would be ideal. To have the majority of people in this country, if not all the people in this country, covered by health insurance or at the very least mm-hmm. to not have people go bankrupt because they've had a catastrophic illness. So mm-hmm. what would you then propose as a legislator? I know that you have said that the ACA wasn't perfect. I think most people agree. I think even Obama said that the ACA mm-hmm. wasn't perfect. So how would you like to sure. I- improve that from a legislative standpoint?
1: So I I have um – to really two goals on the health care front. My ultimate goal is Medicare for all. I think we need a single payer system. But I think that that is not something that we can institute immediately. Right. Even when we take back the House of Representatives for Democrats and even if we get the Senate, Um This is not the kind of thing that we can walk in, pass a law, and it's done, right? This is going to be a long transition process, and it has to be, because we have to be so incredibly thoughtful about the way we design that policy and the law that we actually put in place. It's very complicated. We are talking about a sixth of our economy. We are talking about people's lives we are talking about an enormous industry, and we're talking about making major changes that has to be done thoughtfully, carefully, and slowly. So while we are working on that process, we need to protect and shore up the ACA, the policy that we currently have in place, which is fantastic. It is certainly not flawed, but it has achieved a lot of the goals that it set out to do and made a huge difference for a lot of people. Um, We need to make sure that the markets are working. We need to encourage more states to expand Medicaid. Um, When we look at the numbers, the states that did not participate in Medicaid expansion are really struggling, and the states that did are faring much better. So we need to re-encourage more Medicaid expansion. Um, But I think that this is an area where we can, through... Artful negotiation and compromise, mm-hmm. make some bipartisan progress, right? Because um, the immediate reaction when you say a single payer system, oh, she wants to socialize your medicine, that's not what we're talking about, right? We're, we're talking about a system that makes sure that every single person has health insurance, but it does not mean that we can't also have a private market for health care. It doesn't mean that private insurance companies go away. And if you want to purchase, more than what the public option gives you, you can. You can have a luxury health insurance program with concierge doctors, you know, visits, um, and there will be a private market full of choices to support that. This does not in any way undermine that, but it does make sure that no person in this country has to choose between buying food and buying medicine, or has to suffer without being able to see a doctor until they are in an emergent state when it's too late to help them. Um, So if we look at it that way, I think it's an area where there's tremendous room for compromise and bipartisan work. We just have to reframe the way we talk about it.
0: So one of the areas in your platform that may be a little more problematic for people in your district uh, is your focus on racial justice. And this, of course, is music to progressives ears. um, But I'm wondering how that is received by people who are, say, more uh, independent, conservative, moderate voters in your district.
1: Mm -hmm. So um, it's certainly true that different parts of my platform, that included, included um, get better reception in different communities, right. Or in different conversations and circles. Um, I think this is a conversation that is not necessarily politically easy, but I think it's a conversation that's critically important and we can't avoid it anymore. Um, when we talk about things like criminal justice reform, right, which is really what the plank in my platform that you're referring to is about. Um, We can't talk about that without acknowledging a racial component to the problems with our criminal justice system. If we don't acknowledge that, we are not really talking about the problem. And if we are not honest about what the problem is, we can't solve it. And that's true no matter what problem or issue we're talking about. We have to be able to have honest dialogue about what's going on in this country and whether we want it to or not, all of these issues have racial dimensions to them. Yeah. And that's that's part of our history as a country. It's part of the way our policies have been built and institutionalized over time. Um, and I think, you know, you can also, um, you you can talk to people who, have a sense of fairness and justice, right? And who believe that that's the right thing, who might not understand the racial components of it. If it's not something that you've experienced, it's not necessarily something that you would understand. Hmm. But again, if we find the right ways to talk about these things, um, I think people are far more open and accepting than we give them credit for. And I believe that it is the job of leaders to figure out how best to have those conversations. Um, Good leaders don't shy away from the hard things. Um, And I think in this day and age, more than at any other time, certainly in my lifetime, we need leaders who are going to stand firmly for what is right and just, and be willing to take unpopular positions to make sure that we are doing right not only by our people, but also by our democracy.
0: So before I let you go, uh, I do want to ask about a Democratic challenger who has just entered your race. Uh, You had two other Democratic challengers who have since fallen away. But very recently, Syracuse mayoral candidate Juanita Perez-Williams has declared her candidacy and some have pointed to meddling. the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, akin to what happened in Texas 7th and other districts across the country. And in fact, the DCCC actually paid local canvassers to collect enough signatures for Perez-Williams to qualify for the ballot there. I'm sure that you have to tread very carefully here, but how do you view the challenge from Perez-Williams?
1: I think that what the DCCC has done here is a mistake, I think that we have seen them do this, as you said, in districts all across the country. From what I understand, the reaction from um, people who live in those districts has been roughly the same as the reaction from people here in our district, which is a tremendous amount of anger Mm. and frustration. Um, And I understand why people are angry and frustrated. I think, um, as I said at the beginning, one of the things that I am trying to do with this campaign is talk about how we need to bring politics and government back to the hands of the people where it belongs. Politics, which is not a dirty word. (laughs) Some people
0: disagree, but yeah.
1: Right. But we have to reclaim that word from people who insist that it's a dirty word. Politics is the art of public decision making. It is about bringing community together to solve our problems. In a way that works for all of us, and that is an incredibly beautiful and um, messy, (laughs) very messy (laughs) thing that we need to treasure, right? And we need to um, protect that at all costs. And I think part of this whole thing, you know, this whole feeling of being left out and left behind is because for decades now, our politics has moved away from the perspective that it's about the people. And it has become about entrenched interests and top-down power, right? We just remember Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. We need to get back to that. And the way that my campaign has grown here. Right. We we submitted signatures to get on the ballot in New York State. You need twelve hundred and fifty signatures. We submitted eight thousand. Wow. Our commissioner of the board of elections here said in his twenty five years in politics, he's never seen anything close to that on a campaign. That's tremendous. And that's a reflection of the excitement of the people on the ground here. Right. right? This is truly an organic grassroots movement for change that we are building And that's what politics should be. And so when outside influences, when DC insiders and power players come in and say, no, we're going to ignore what you have done and what you are saying and what you're asking for. And instead, we're going to tell you what's good for you. That's Incredibly problematic.
0: No, yeah. Well, it does sound like there is a great deal of popular support for you on the ground there, which is just tremendous. Um, let's see if we can increase that. Uh, tell people where they can go to learn more, to volunteer, to donate, all that good stuff.
1: Great. So the campaign website is electdanabalter.com. And um, everything you need to find is there. Story about me um, information about the platform that I'm running on. There is of course the all imp- important, donate button, which <laughs> as you noted is in purple, yep. um, at the top of the page. And, um, you can sign up on the website to volunteer and you don't have to be close by to volunteer. There are lots of ways to volunteer remotely, phone banking and letter writing and postcard campaigns. Um, And we are thrilled to have as many people involved as possible, because as I said, this really is a grassroots campaign about the people. We are thrilled to have support, both in terms of monetary donations and volunteer efforts from people all across the country. And we want to continue building that, because what we're fighting for here is not only good representation for New York's 24th district. But we are fighting for the heart and soul of our country, and we are fighting for a revival of politics of the people. And that's something that everybody who lives in this country has a stake in. So we invite everybody to join us. We're going to work together, and I think come November, we're going to have a lot of celebrating to do.
0: Well, Dana Balter, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I really want to wish you the best of luck, and congratulations again on the endorsement.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: So, all of Dana's contact info can be found on the SoundCloud page and on the website, indivisiblepodcast.org. So, you can check it out there. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.